0: Hosea chapter 3, we'll read the entire chapter because we're going to look at verses 1 through 5, which is the entire chapter. So, uh, Hosea 3, begin reading at verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver. And one and one half omers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Amen. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are thankful for your love for your people and love for an undeserving people, love for an enslaved people. We confess that before we were redeemed and saved, before you had worked in us by your spirit, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and we were not looking for heaven. We were not looking for you. Yet you are pleased in your goodness. You are pleased according to the execution of your decrees in time and space to save sinners like us and to give us the redemption we need in Christ Jesus and to apply those benefits by the spirit in time and space. And so thank you for the picture that we see here. We certainly see a picture of what sin is and the enslavement that it is for those who are dead in it, but we're thankful for the redemption, for the release from it in the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us to appreciate that redemption. Help us to appreciate uh, that we are justified in your sight. Help us to appreciate we've been released from the curse of the law and the curse of sin. And we ask and pray that you would encourage our hearts tonight as we consider what you have done for us, as we consider your ways. Certainly, it's good for us to remember what we once were, but help us to remember what we are now in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask that tonight would be a time of encouragement, a time of uplifting, a time of recognition that you are God and that you do love your people. And we see your love for your people in the crosswork of Christ. So we ask that you send forth your spirit to give us illumination as we study a difficult passage. Give us aid from on high to better understand what your word says. We pray that your saints would be edified. We pray that sinners would be saved. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, many people mistake engaging in sin as a freedom. Perhaps someone has felt like they've been sheltered all their life, and as they grow older, they want to break free from those shackles. They want to find some sort of freedom in the world. And that freedom usually is to do whatever they wish to do, whatever they want to do, which usually means engaging in all sorts of lewdness and all sorts of sin. See, the world defines freedom as one who can do whatever they wish and whatever they want according uh, to their own ways, which violates God's law. But what the world calls freedom is what God calls slavery. And as judgment, Yahweh gives people over to their slavery and makes it a harsher master than it already is. This is what Israel is facing at the time of the prophet Hosea. They have gone after other gods. They have violated the covenant that God had made with them. And God will eventually hand them over to the gods that they wish to worship. They shall be cast out and put into a land where uh, gods are worshipped in that place. And so Israel is facing that. Israel is uh, is it's it's coming towards uh, to them because of their violations of God's law and violating the the image of marriage that we see between Yahweh and Israel. But there is some remarkable encouragement that we see in Hosea chapter three. The Lord who has been rejected will redeem a people out of that slavery. And the reason He shall redeem that people is because of His infinite love for an undeserving people. This is what makes God's love inexplicable, makes it astonishing when we consider what we once were, when we consider what sin is and what sin deserves and what God did for us in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember during the time of the prophet Hosea, it's around the 8th century. He's probably one of the first prophets that's come on the scene. It's during the time of the divided kingdom. Remember, there's Israel in the north, Judah in the south. In Israel, there are no good kings. There's wickedness. They worship the Baals. We have that wicked king Ahab and his wicked wife uh, Jezebel. Uh, And so during this time, though, it's probably under Jeroboam the second. So there's a lot of prosperity that is happening at this time, but they're engaging a lot of wickedness and lewdness at this time as well, and the picture, the message of the book of Hosea is Hosea's marriage to Gomer. His marriage is a picture of Israel's spiritual idolatry. His marriage is the message of the entire book what Yahweh will do to an adulterous wife send her into judgment but, uh, but also in restoration as well as far as the book's structure it is difficult uh, but perhaps chapters 1 through 3 deals with Hosea's family and that as a picture of Israel and their violations of God's covenant and so we come uh, to chapter 3 this evening And we see, we have another picture again of Yahweh's love for his people. And the problem that we see in Hosea 3 is the problem of being enslaved to sin. When one is in sin, they are under slavery. Sin is that master. Sin is what shackles them. It is not a freedom. We see this picture with Gomer, who is enslaved in her sin. And it certainly is a good picture of sin in general, especially when you come to the New Testament. What we once were, According to what Paul says, we were once slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to righteousness. How does Yahweh do this? How does Yahweh uh, make us righteous? How does Yahweh redeem us? Well, he does that, spoiler alert, through the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also see here a foreshadow of what that will look like in Hosea 3. In Hosea 3, we see a picture of the Lord's redemption of a people enslaved to idolatry. It is a picture of redemption. And he redeems them because of his love for them. So we'll look at this redeeming love under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see love for an adulteress in verses 1 and 2. Then secondly, we'll see redemption for an adulteress in verses 3 through 5. So love for an adulteress, verses 1 and 2. And redemption for an adulteress in verses 3 through 5. So let's first look at love for an adulteress in verses 1 and 2. Now remember the context. God has given Hosea this specific command to take a wife of harlotry. It is a symbolic act that he is going to engage in. There's a lot of difficulties when you read the book of Hosea. A lot of ink that is spilt on the differing views. A lot of commentators say a lot of different things. But I really do believe Hosea married a harlot, or one who would be a harlot at least, one who actually does engage in harlotry and fornication and adultery. And I do believe Gomer is still in view here in Hosea chapter 3. It just seems to be how the text reads. It seems to be uh, in connection with chapter 1 and chapter 2. We saw how the focus shifts to Israel as that adulterous wife uh, and certainly, uh, there could be implications that what you see with Israel is what Gomer does as well. And certainly, we then see that in Hosea chapter 3. We also saw in Hosea 1 and also into Hosea 2 as well the names of his children. The name of, names of his children signify something about judgment not my people, no mercy. Um, and uh, the Jezreel uh, all signifies something about judgment, but then they're also used to signify something about restoration as well. So and that's how Hosea 2 ends, where we see, I'll have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. They shall say, you are my God. So. Gomer engages in adultery, and Gomer's adultery signifies Israel's spiritual adultery. And we come back again to Hosea and his specific life, once again, as a picture for Israel. And notice what the Lord says to him in verse 1. He comes again and gives a command. Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover. Again, there's a specific purpose of the Lord here. It is a symbolic act. It is not a proof text for conversion dating, nor are we against divorce in situations of adultery. God hates divorce, but God also regulates legitimate reasons for divorce in the fallen world in which we live. One of them is adultery. And so Hosea has every grounds for divorce here, but God is teaching Israel a lesson By the prophet Hosea and his life. And so he says to her, Go again and love her. The implication she has gone, and it is very clear that she has gone. She has left, she has gone after somebody else rather than Hosea. And so God commands him, go, be patient, be kind with her, don't envy, don't boast, do not seek your own, do not be provoked, do not rejoice in iniquity. And what we see in this chapter, it summarizes how costly love is, summarizes how love is a sacrifice, and Yahweh is going to send forth his son, who would be that sacrifice for his People And so Hosea is going to have to sacrifice a lot as well as he goes again and takes a woman or takes Gomer uh, as his wife once again, or purchases her back, uh, even though she is noticed loved by a lover. Go love Gomer, but go love one who is loved by somebody else. Now, it is true the word used for lover there can refer to husband. It is used this way in Jeremiah chapter 3, but can also refer to someone other than Hosea. I think that is in view here. Go love a woman who is loved by somebody else. Go love a woman who has left you for somebody else. Else. And we certainly we see uh, the, 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 the language of husband is used in chapter two to a differing word. Bring charges against your mother. She is not my wife, nor am I her husband. But God is going to do something to bring his people back and certainly going and loving this woman of adultery is going to give a picture of what God is going to do for Israel. That's tough. That's hard. But when we consider what we once were, when we consider what we did and uh, how we violated God's law, it makes God's love all the more remarkable. And so he says, go love a woman by a lover and notice is committing adultery. The grammar indicates it is a perpetual thing. It is something that happens often. It is not a one-time affair. It happens quite often. So that's a hard command to Hosea. Go love that woman whom you have children with, who is loved by another uh, uh, and is committing adultery. And so he gives uh, gives this command. And notice it is a picture of Yahweh's love for Israel. Still in verse 1. Just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who looked to other gods and loved the raisin cakes of the Pagans who love other things, who love idolatry, who love worshiping the baals, and the baals came up a lot in chapter two. They were are referred to in chapter two a differing word as lovers. They're referred to as those who are not the, the husband of Yah- or, uh, not the husband of Israel. You see, what Israel is doing was engaging in syncretism, blending the worship of Yahweh. With the worship of pagans, and they mainly did worship like pagans rather than worshiping Yahweh. A lot of times, worshipers in this present evil age are mercenaries. We only want to do what God gives us. We only want to worship the God who gives us the best things in this world. Now, brethren, the Lord God Almighty gives us the best things in this world. But in a world full of depravity and a world full of sin... People mainly want God to give them things. They mainly want God to give them prosperity. They want God to give them riches. They want God to give them plenty and bountiful. And certainly that's why the Israelites are like, let's worship Baal. Let's worship Molech. Let's worship Yahweh. Let's see if we can just uh, run the gamut to make sure that we have all gods in view to make sure we get the best things. And so Israel has violated the covenant that God had made with them. God had warned them. God had said, one day you're going to violate this covenant. But nonetheless, they still violate and go against the terms of that old covenant. But Hosea's marriage, Hosea's love for Gomer is like the love or a picture of the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. Now, God's love is his essence. But we see his love revealed in his work, especially toward undeserving people. And as we're going to see, he is going to redeem her. Hosea is going to redeem her and Yahweh is going to redeem her as well. You see that picture, Hosea's marriage and Yahweh and Israel. And so Israel has gone after spiritual uh, uh, other gods. They've engaged in spiritual idolatry. And even Hosea too, uh, as Yahweh shuts up the lovers, they'll say, well, then I'll just go back to my first husband because it was better for me. Then that mercenary spirit, rather than honoring God and asking how we can glorify and honor God, they rather go back to him for what he gives and notice the reason for which, or one of the reasons for which they leave Yahweh and notice the insignificant reason and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. What in the world does that mean? Probably refers to flaky wafers. And flaky is a good description for the reason that they left Yahweh. Typically, these wafers were used as offerings to other gods. The hope was after you offered some to other gods that then you would receive some back. See that mercenary spirit. What will you do for me? And they were a delicacy. They were a good thing. And so it was part of that worship. We give some, but he gives a lot back as well. But notice it is something of no substance. Notice for something so little, the people of Israel leave Yahweh for flaky wafers, for cakes of raisins. McKay says it is a sarcastic exposure of how little it took to divert Israel from the Lord, a trivial sop to satisfy their appetites, was sufficient to motivate them to be inconstant and treacherous in their behavior. That's all it took. We'll give you some cake. We'll give you some raisins. We'll give you some cakes of raisins. Come worship Baal. That's all that was required for them to go after the Baals. See how people quickly leave Yahweh, how qu- quickly people of Israel went after other gods rather than Yahweh himself. Now, A lot of writers highlight some modern application here with Israel's worship, going after other gods, wanting what they give rather than worshiping God. And There is a lot of modern application to the church and how worship is conducted and how worship in many times has been conducted throughout the ages. The reason we believe in the regulative principle of worship is when we come into worship, we ask God, whose house it is, how he wishes to be worshiped. We don't ask the world how they want to worship God. We ask God in his word how we should worship him. And so often the world is about cakes of raisins. So often the world is about, you know, how meeting the felt needs of people rather than worshiping Yahweh of Israel becomes a spiritual super mall rather than the house of God most high. And if I may say some services sound very pagan. Pagan, some of the repetition in some of the songs is very, very pagan. That's what pagans do, right? They say things over and over and over and over and over and over again, thinking that's when they will be heard. Just like we see Jesus say in Matthew chapter 6. Now, there are still a lot of good churches, a lot of faithful churches that have worship that I would not agree with. But uh, for all intents and purposes, there is this focus. When it comes to church, it is more about the consumer rather than Yahweh of Israel. And Israel uh, was no different. So Yahweh still loves her. Yahweh tells Hosea to go take Gomer and love her and notice the purchase of her in verse two. She is enslaved. She is perhaps a concubine. She perhaps has gone into debt and notice the likely situation, how costly it truly is for one. He's probably going to have to go to the lover and buy her. She probably owes something to the lover. And so it becomes a concubine, perhaps, or perhaps other reasons. And he is going to go and purchase her. That could be in view here, or she could be engaging in other things as well. But it's going to cost Hosea something and the mixed payment seems to indicate he had to scrape and scrounge to find enough to purchase her a slave is caught worth thirty shekels according to exodus chapter twenty one and so he has to scrounge to purchase his wife So I went and I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and one half omers of barley, or as the Hebrew says, homers of barley. You have to have the guttural involved there. But 220 liters is one homer. And so he has to have this mixed payment to be able to go and buy his wife back, to be able to purchase his wife and pay off whatever debts perhaps she may owe to her lover. That's why the idea of enslavement, the theology of slavery and slavery to sin, um, I think is in view here. And we'll see it again a little bit with what he says in verse three, but what Hosea has to do costs him, not just in his emotional life, not just in how he feels, but also financially as well. It's going to cost him something to go and purchase his wife. And so he does. He does what Yahweh says. He honors what Yahweh commands. I bought her for myself for this much. And what this teaches us is how enslaving sin is. There's a lot of ways the Bible gives us images about sin. Certainly sin in its essence is lawlessness, but it's called the curse of sin, the guilt of sin, but also slavery to sin. Man in sin doesn't realize that he is in shackles. And again, that's why in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 and following, and especially verse 17, Paul describes what we once were and what we are now in Christ. We were once certainly dead in our sin and we're alive in Christ, but we were once slaves to sin. Now we are slaves to God. And he says, What then? Shall we sin because we are under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you, know, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are, the one, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. We were once shackled We were once under our sin as a master, but now we are no longer on under it because we have been redeemed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why redemption, as we think about the work of the Lord, is an important image to describe what Jesus does uh, in the work of redemption. What Jesus does on the cross, we were once in he redeems us by removing those chains and sin is very enslaving. And there are many examples of that. Just turn on the news. Just drive down Hastings. There are other ways people are enslaved to sin. Slavery a sin brings one slave or uh, is uh, a sign that one is in slavery. It enslaves someone rather than is a source of freedom. And you see this with Gomer. She kept going back. She kept going to her lover. She had to be purchased. She had debts that she owed. It just spiraled down uh, more and more spiraled out of control. It enslaves. But thankfully, there is redemption. We need redemption. Again, we can't miss that language of redemption in God's word. And so we see love for an adult arrest, but we also see redemption for an adult arrest, which is in verses 3 through 5. So redemption for an adult arrest, verses 3 through 5. And notice we see the probation, or we could say the captivity of Gomer. In verse 3. So he buys her back. And notice what he says to her. Though he purchases her. They're not going to function like husband and wife just yet. There's going to be a testing period. This is similar to what happens to slaves in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Uh, If Israel goes into battle. And they plunder. And someone sees a wife that he likes. uh, Or a, a foreign lady he likes. He can bring her into the camp. But there's a probationary period that has to happen First, Many writers point that out. And so we see, and I said to her, you shall stay with me. There's a probation here going on. Not quite like that, but certainly a probation still is in view. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. There's the probation. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. And so too will I be toward you. Gomer belongs to Hosea as his wife, but he is also his purchased possession as well, and he has set the terms for her. We're not going to function like husband and wife just yet. I know your ways. I know what you're going to do. I know your proclivities. We need to have this testing period first before that time. And so he gives some conditions. You can't engage in harlotry. Seems fair in a marriage, doesn't it? And seems like a fair request considering what she has done. And so he says, no, harlot, you shall not have a man. But notice, so too, I will be toward you. He's not going to engage in harlotry, and he's not going to have a woman as well. There's going to be this probationary period for the both of them. He has proven to be faithful. Yahweh has proven to be faithful. But even as he brings her back and does give this probationary period, he says, I also will be one who engages it With you. So there's this testing period for Gomer, which is a testing period for the people of Israel. Notice what he says in verse 4. He talked about many days in verse 3, and then he says, verse 4, for the children of Israel shall abide many days. You see, Gomer's probation is a picture of Israel's captivity. Gomer's testing is a picture of what where Israel is going to go, both as a punishment, but also as a probation. You see, there is application to what Gomer does, certainly to Israel's captivity, but many of the writers also equate it with the church's captivity. Brethren, we have been redeemed in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we can't miss that there's New Testament language that describes us as what? Exiles. Heaven is our home. Canada is not. Christ has died for us. Christ is our husband, but we haven't yet come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are still waiting for that marriage supper supper of the Lamb, and in a lot of ways, we are in this testing period, and there was a lot of application from the commentators how the Lord does test his people in the present age. God, uh, uh, God afflicts us for various reasons. God's people live in exile, and we have to deal with remaining sin. And sometimes that affliction is a testing for the people of God. You know how I know that? <laughs> because James says so. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you face trials of various kinds, for it is a testing. I paraphrased there. I want to see what he actually says. Um, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Trials are for our good. We hate them, but trials are for our good. Trials are for our benefit. We don't pray that they come upon us, but when they come upon us, we must recognize that they are from God most high and for Good. I love what the confession says uh, under Providence paragraph uh, chapter five, paragraph five. We looked at Providence yesterday uh, in our systematic theology study. But five five says the most wise, righteous and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins. Or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends, so that whatever whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good." Gomer's captivity, Israel's captivity, the church's exile as we await our heaven. And God does test his people in that time. But thankfully, there is an assurance. I love what Jeremiah Burroughs says concerning that assurance for us. He says, others who are not in covenant with him, God casts off for lesser sins for any sins. But as for his covenant people, not even their adulteries nor their idolatries alienate the heart of God wholly from them. Isn't that the picture of what we see here? God's redemption for a wretched, undeserving people. God is going to send Israel into captivity. Gomer's probation is a picture of that very thing. And so we see for the children of Israel shall abide many days without various things. Now we know Israel, the Northern kingdom will be taken if you're speaking during the time of Hosea, will be taken uh, in 722 by Assyria. The southern kingdom will go in 586. And certainly we see when we talk about David, he's looking ahead past to the exile of both those kingdoms. He's looking to a united kingdom once again. But Israel and eventually Judah, they shall go into captivity. And notice they're going to have no government, no religion, no priesthood. We see that without king or priest. What was typically helpful to determine and was important and vital for a nation as a body politic was a government, a king, a prince. They're not going to have that anymore. They're not going to be a nation anymore. They're going to be gone. And that's what happens to them. But they're also not going to have their religion. When Israel is sent into captivity... They do not engage in ceremonial sacrifices. Remember when they come back and engage in the first sacrifice? Remember they're all crying? Why are they all crying? Why are the people who were taken away crying? Because they longed for that time. They longed for that period. They longed for the return of the, the remnant, longed for the return of right worship. But certainly we see with that worship aspect without sacrifice or sacred pillar, he's talking about the syncretism going on as well. Not only will the good stuff be gone, not only will, be, not only will right worship be gone, but also the wicked stuff's going to be gone as well. The sacred pillars where the people would go up and offer sacrifices at the place that God did not choose. That's going to be gone as well. That is going to be removed as well. And remember, for the northern kingdom, Israel was not worshiping at the place Yahweh chose, right? That was in Jerusalem, which is in the southern kingdom. That's why Jeroboam set up other temples, set up those golden calves so that people didn't have to go down to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem was the place that God chose for his people. But Israel, all that, the good and the bad, shall be removed. And there's going to be no more priesthood as well. Without ephod, probably mentions or reference to the priesthood there. But also the teraphim. What are teraphim? Household gods. Again, you see that syncretism going on again. The priesthood, which is good, and the teraphim, the household gods, they shall be gone as well. And remember... Uh, is it, uh, yeah, Rachel, she takes the household gods from Laban. We see in judges with Micah and he builds how they make that the household gods. And then the Danites engage in idolatry under the time, a period of the judges, Israel engaged in idolatry very quickly, not just with Baal, but also with these household gods. So the good and the bad shall be no more. They shall be removed under that captivity. Israel shall abide many days without these things. But thankfully, there is redemption. Verse five. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Now, we know that Israel historically returns under Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah in the book of Ezra, Nehemiah but you know, as they come back, it's not complete. They still need a King. They still really do need to be a nation, right? And really the fulfillment of that comes not in a temporal place, but comes in the Lord Jesus Christ, which not in a temporal place in the present evil age, but a temporal place, a heavenly place, an everlasting place that comes in and through Christ Who is that true Israel? You see, there's a spiritual work that God does. And return here can refer to repentance. They shall turn from their ways. They shall turn from their idols to the true and living God. They shall turn from their idolatry to the one true God. It is a spiritual work that God is going to do after this probationary period. They shall come and repent what's interesting is when Jesus comes on the scene and he proclaims the gospel, what does he say in Mark one, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. In the new Testament, repentance is called a gift. God granted unto the Gentiles repentance. You see, God gives repentance to his people. He gives repentance to his elect. He regenerates, he, uh, And then he gives the gifts of faith and repentance and his people repent and believe upon Christ. It's what God does. They shall return. They shall repent. They shall come back. Jeremiah Burroughs says, well, saith God, I will not deal so with you hereafter. I will not trust you as I have done. You have been in misery in your own ways, and I have delivered you when you have cried to me and then you have returned to your sins. That's The reason for the probation, but now you shall be thoroughly humbled. You shall be many years in this low and mean condition, and then your hearts will be completely broken, so that when you return to me again, you shall never backslide. Isn't that the promise of the new covenant? Isn't that the promise of Jeremiah thirty one? They shall return and seek the Lord. They shall consult the Lord. They shall call upon the name of the Lord. Joel two, Acts two call upon the name of the Lord, Romans chapter 10, all finding its fulfillment in Christ and the benefits that are found in the Lord Jesus Christ in the new covenant era. They shall repent. They shall seek the Lord, their God, and notice David, their king. They're longing for a king. They're longing for David's greater son, which the return does not have. And even in Ezekiel 34, he promises that one who is a shepherd like David shall come. And notice in Romans 1, he was what? Descended from David according to the flesh. Or what Paul and Barnabas preach in Acts chapter 13 in the synagogue in Galatia. What do they say? They, it's this long chapter that points out how the Old Testament Psalms, Old Testament passages... Point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And one thing he highlights in Acts chapter 13, he says, certainly you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2. Then he says, I will give you the sure mercies of David. And he says in 35 of Acts 13, therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Then he says in verse 36, for David... After he served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. David points ahead. David's greater son, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, comes in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is bringing in his kingdom. And as he brings in that kingdom, his subjects will fear the Lord and he will give them blessings. He will give them goodness. And that's what we see in verse five. They shall fear the Lord. He shall make them willing in the day of his power. They shall believe upon him. They shall fear God most high. Again, Israel was not doing this under the old covenant, but in the new covenant, they shall. And so they shall fear the Lord, but also his goodness That is the goodness that he gives, the goodness that he bestows, the goodness that he provides for his people. In Jeremiah 31, before we get to that prophecy about the new covenant era, talking about the remnant and the salvation and the, the hope that they have and what they await. He says in verse 12, Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion. Streaming to the goodness of the Lord, the goodness of the Lord coming to where it is for wheat and new wine and oil. For the young of the flock and the herd, their souls shall be like a well watered garden and they shall sorrow no more at all. Israel had a great time of prosperity in the time of Hosea. That is going to be taken away. But notice the language that is used to describe the blessings and the hope and the bliss and the goodness of God, wheat and new wine, oil, water, all those things that are descriptive of what Yahweh does for his people under that new covenant era. Doesn't mean we're going to drive Rolls Royces in this part of the world, but what it, or this time and in this present evil age, but what it means is we have blessings forevermore that are far better than driving a Rolls Royce. And so the conduct will change. The goodness God shall bestow uh, is greater after that captivity. After they return, they shall fear the Lord and his goodness notice in the latter days. I love the Lord's providence because we talked about the last hour this morning, did we not? And one thing I thought of after the sermon, it's always great when I think about something to say after the sermon, you kind of want to hope or you hope you kind of want to hope that you say it during the actual sermon. But think about the language of last hour for just a moment. We don't know the day or the hour when Christ comes, but one thing we can be assured of, it is the last hour. That is, Christ's coming is very imminent. The last 2,000 years have been imminent. The last 2,000 years have been Christ's power, Christ's last hour, the last hour. But the point I'm trying to make is the last hour is cleanup. The last hour is Christ just making his enemies his footstool. He is the one who has crushed the head of the seed of the serpent. We'll see that in 1 John 3, 8. Brethren, we're in the last hour. Christ is coming again. Christ shall return. Christ shall. It rain, is reigning now and shall come again. So be of good cheer. He is coming soon. But back to the Old Testament. They had an eschatology, didn't they? In the latter days. They longed for the last days. They longed for the latter days. They longed for the last hour. And what they longed for was the new covenant. What they longed for was the outpouring of the Spirit at the last days. And we saw this morning that is found in Joel chapter two. Remember, eschatology just means the goal, certainly the last things driving towards that purpose. And what is God's purpose in this world? That man glorifies him and enjoys him forever. Sin severs that Christ restores that. And he makes it possible that undeserving sinners can dwell with him forever. So the remnant long for this latter time. The, as the prophets, the apostles say, they long to see what you see. The prophets long to see what the apostles see, what we see. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. The latter days are fulfilled in Christ, in his coming, as the last days begin with his coming and the outpouring at Pentecost. Now, the first coming certainly shows God's love for us. And certainly his second coming uh, shall come to pass as well. And we shall praise God forever. But his first coming is just as much of an assurance uh, for us. Um, That's a weird way of saying that. I meant to say, First coming shows how God loves us, but the first coming also assures us that he is going to come again. The latter days have begun. He is going to complete it. And all this is meant to show how loving God is towards us, isn't he? We who once dead in our trespasses, we are once enslaved to sin. He is the one who redeems us. When you consider what we once were and consider God's love, isn't it indescribable 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us. Brethren, we weren't searching for the Lord, were we? We weren't longing for him. We were like Gomer. We were like Israel. We were enslaved to our sin. Yet, what does God do for us? He redeems us. And when you consider your former enslavement, how remarkable is his redemption? And notice even in Romans chapter 3. When he says, or after he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. How? Through the redemption that is brought by his blood. That is how we are righteous in his sight. That is how we have communion with him. That is how we are free from slavery to sin because he has redeemed us. It's meant to be an encouragement and a reality for us. And we must remember that God's redeeming love for his people. And that's why hymn 188, and we'll close here, stanza three, is so important. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supplied, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for your infinite love for an undeserving people. Thank you that we see your love uh, in your work toward us uh, as you sent forth your son to die on our behalf. And thank you that the spirit has been poured out to give us all that we need. Thank you that the last days have begun. Thank you that Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises of the law and the prophets. Thank you that he has come and he shall come again. And thank you that it really is the last hour. There really isn't much longer until you come again. And we long for your coming. We long for your return. We long for uh, that second coming. Help us to walk faithfully as we await. Help us to fear you and help us to appreciate the goodness that you've provided for us. Even as we are still exiles in this land, thank you for the inheritance that has been purchased for us. And thank you that we do even now come to Zion and we long to enter into that fullness Uh, when Christ comes again to finish that cleanup, finish making his enemies his footstool. And so we ask and pray as we walk this world, we would be encouraged by your love for us. We would be reminded of your redemption for us. What we once were, who were enslaved to sin, have now been redeemed and are now slaves to righteousness. So help us to walk in a way that is pleasing unto you. Help us to walk in a way that is honoring to you but help us to do so grounded in you and grounded in Christ and what he has done for such undeserving wretches like us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your redemption. Thank you for the encouragement that you provide for your people. And we pray that you encourage us now and uplift us and help us as we go into the world. We pray these things in the name of Christ.